From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are facing our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today's show is dedicated to remembering Tim Keller. Tim passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer last Friday. He was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, and the author of a number of influential books, including The Reason for God and The Prodigal God. He was also someone who was respected outside of evangelical circles for his winsomeness and an approach to ministry that avoided both culture-warring sectarianism and compromising syncretism. On the show today, I'll be talking to Colin Hansen, who published a biography of Keller earlier this year. We'll talk about his origin story, the things that shaped his life and his work. I'll then be joined by Russell Moore, Nicole Martin, and David Brooks for a conversation about Tim's work, his influence, and his legacy. Finally, I'll be joined by Makoto Fujimura, an artist and an author who was part of Tim's church for a long time and whose work intersected with Tim's ministry for the past three decades. So stay with us. Colin Hansen is the vice president and editor-in-chief of the Gospel Coalition. Earlier this year, he published a biography about Tim Keller. We started our conversation talking about Tim's origin story, his roots in the Jesus movement and British evangelicalism. So how does the world of British evangelicalism connect to the Jesus movement? Was he converted in the Jesus movement and then discovered British evangelicalism? Or <laughs> Yeah, so really he's a convert of InterVarsity, and InterVarsity starts as a British movement. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have this clear thread. You have C. Stacy Woods. He is the first director of InterVarsity in North America. He connects back to his mentor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous London preacher post-war. And then Stacy Woods, one of his first female staff member for InterVarsity is Barbara Boyd. Hmm. Barbara Boyd becomes the first person to teach Tim Keller how to study the Bible. It's just basically inductive, observational Bible study method. It's the Bible and Life conferences that would be so huge in InterVarsity during those uh, 1960s and 1970s years. So that's how it converges, is you have this classic campus-based British evangelical movement, but it just hits this Jesus movement. And I mean, this is also the time, of course, Mike, with Young Life going like crazy, which Kathy Keller was a big part of, and Tim also had overlap with. This is also the time of Labrie, so, you know, Tim's getting to know Ligonier Valley Study Center as a college student that's led by R.C. Sproul. He got that idea from Francis Schaefer and Labrie, and it's right in the Keller family and, and Kathy's family's backyard. So, yeah, I mean, these things are just converging in a, in a unique way. But I would say that probably more than anything else, Gordon Conwell is the place that brought all of those streams together. He actually served as an InterVarsity campus minister at Framingham while he was there. And at the same time, he was learning from you know, the Swiss Baptist theologian Roger Nicole, the British theologian Andrew Lincoln, but also with Richard Loveless and with Elizabeth Elliot and you know American evangelical luminaries. And so that's probably more than anywhere else. It's, it's Gordon Conwell that's bringing all those streams together. How quickly after his conversion did he want to go into ministry? So glad you asked that question, Mike, because that is one of the embarrassments of my book, is that it never even occurred to me to ask that question. 
it never came up with anybody. I can't believe it. But I think what happened is that there was never a time when he wasn't, quote unquote, doing ministry Hmm. after his conversion. You know, one of the other reasons I left it out is because his mother had a strong inclination, his Italian Catholic mother who baptized him Catholic and Lutheran, just to be sure, (laughs) and then leaves the Lutheran church to go to the Evangelical Congregational Church, which is a bit of a fundamentalist kind of holiness tinge to it. She's dead set that he is going to become this leading figure in her evangelical congregational church denomination, a small Eastern Pennsylvania denomination. And that's the moment where he just, you know, breaks her heart because he becomes reformed, Hmm. which is the worst thing (laughs) to do there. That's what they were afraid of. He'd go after Gordon Conwell and he'd become reformed. And that's exactly what he does in in large part through the influence of his then wife, Mm -hmm. his future wife, Kathy Keller. But like when he becomes a convert in 1970, he's just immediately doing ministry. He's discipling, he's evangelizing. His good friend Bruce Henderson says, I don't know how he got any schoolwork done because all I saw him do was (laughs) ministry. (laughs) I think one of the things about his ministry that's so interesting is that you look at the timeline of a lot of the influential leaders in evangelicalism right now, it's a very fast timeline from I'm going to go into ministry to I'm pastoring, church planting, I have a platform, I have this, that, and the other. You know, he published his first book in, was it 2006 that A Reason for God Uh, came out? 2008. He would have been in his 50s at the time, 57. 57. Mm -hmm. So... So he has this long timeline. I mean, he plants Redeemer when he's in his 40s, right? Yeah, he's 30, 39. 39. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so what happens like in the, the, the 15, 20 years between coming to Christ and planting Redeemer, which is what most of us know him for? What filled those years? Yeah. I don't know anybody who got half as much out of his four years of undergraduate and his three years of graduate school as Tim Keller did. It's why I have a bunch of chapters in the book about that time. But he goes straight from Gordon Conwell. He needs a job. He's looking to be a pastor, but there's a problem. He's in New England. He's only had experience in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. But through the influence of R.C. Sproul, especially, but also his professor, Andrew Lincoln, he's PCA. He's Presbyterian Church in America. It's largely a Southern denomination. He doesn't have a job. Okay, so he's thinking, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I need to have a living. So... Kathy and I are going to take the postal workers service exam so that we can be mail carriers. We don't know what, we don't have anything else to do here. He connects with a guy named Kennedy Smart. And Kennedy Smart says, hey, I got a great situation for you. It's down in Virginia. It's a small church, 100 people. It's for three months. <laughs> but my favorite comment came from, it's the kind of comment that I think only the best man at your wedding can say. I'm going back and forth with Bruce Henderson about this, and I say, you know, they must have been desperate with the Hopewell Church because, I mean, why else would it be studying to be a mail carrier? Nothing against mail carriers. It's just not what he studied. And Bruce says, yeah, they were desperate, but I'm talking about the church in Hopewell. They were the ones who must have been so desperate to bring Tim and Kathy there because <laughs> they would not have been impressive mm. at all. Mm. I think it's it's not because they didn't have tremendous gifting. It's just they were young, mm-hmm. they were untested, and they were both admittedly, self-admittedly, awkward. Mm. You know, Tim's the drum major of the marching band, and Kathy's the newspaper editor. That's kind of their their identities in the 
you know, kind of in the school cafeteria there. So they just weren't the R.C. Sproul jocular type figures who were going to cut a really, you know, a strong impression there. So, you know, the Hopewell years are really what form him. And then in Hopewell, he gets his doctor of ministry. And then a doctor of ministry that introduced is at Westminster Seminary and he goes to Westminster Seminary. From Westminster Seminary, he then is discerning a call toward ministry, does not want to call back toward pastoral ministry and church planting in particular, but he doesn't want to go. He'd been a pastor in Hopewell for nine years. He burned out. Hmm. When he went to Westminster, he had two part-time jobs. One of them was to replace Ed Clowney in all his teaching hmm. on the church and on preaching. I don't think it was actually on the church. It was, I think they split the classes, but he was taking up his pastoral theology work. Mm-hmm. That was number one. Number two, he was responsible to travel around and lead the mercy ministries of the PCA. Mm-hmm. Two jobs, they were both full-time, but he said, Mike, that it felt like a sabbatical mm-hmm. compared to being a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia. So that's why he wasn't eager to jump back in being a pastor again. He tries desperately to find somebody else because he's representing Mission to North America and the PCA. He's trying to find somebody else to take the bait and to go up to New York and be the pastor. But everyone else, the who's who of famous young Presbyterian pastors now that we would see looking back, they all turn him down one by Mm. one, and he realizes it's going to have to be me. Mm. But even then, Mike, you've got a good 20 years before he's published at that kind of famous level. And when he comes out the gates publishing, the first one is a compilation basically of all these questions and answers he's gotten as a pastor on apologetic issues, the reason for God. And then there's the prodigal God, which is essentially his autobiography of Mm -hmm. grace. He never built it that way, but that's what it was. Tim Keller, the drum major, is is one of the (laughs) images that, that... You know, hearing his story, reading his story and stuff always kind of sticks with me. Trumpet player. Trumpet player. He was player. a trumpet player. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, you just The image that comes to your mind immediately is like Harold Hill, um, <laughs> which I don't see much uh, otherwise much in common with, with Tim and Harold Hill. When you worked on your biography of Keller, what elements of his kind of origin story or, or the, the story of ministry, what surprised you as you were getting to know him and looking at his background. One of the surprises, Mike, was really kind of strangely personal. I was working on the book during a really, really, really intense period of life, and we um, had our our third child, William Christopher. William was my grandfather's name. Christopher is my middle name, Hanson. And right after we named my son... I was started studying Tim's younger brother, Billy, mm. and it turned out Billy's name was William Christopher Keller. And um, I don't know what in the world that was all about, but just that part is probably the most significant new aspect of my book. Maybe that and Tim Keller actually starting Table Talk magazine as a protest against his professors as heretics at Gordon-Conwell. Maybe that also. <laughs> but um, but the fact that Tim had one brother, he was his younger brother, and that he died of AIDS, complications related to AIDS in 1998, and that he'd been gay. Hmm. That probably was the was story that stood out the most. But the real key there was not just that narrative but it came through a question that I asked him. I said, did you 
you know, did you preach the funeral? He's like, yeah. Okay, what did you say? I don't know. It's it's somewhere out there. There's probably some recording, but I don't know where the notes are. <laughs> Come on. I need to know what you said at your only brother's funeral. I have to know. Hmm. And thankfully Tim's assistant Craig Ellis came through with me and gave me the gave me the transcript of it or the notes at least that he was planning to use there. And Tim's younger brother had converted. Um, in hospice, Tim didn't even have one day, full day in hospice, <laughs> but Billy had months. Their parents came and tended to him and sang to him, you know, over and over, were very constant presence. Uh, pastors had come in to minister to him, and, and eventually he had professed Christ. And so this was a message that Tim delivered about his brother becoming a Christian. <laughs> but also, it was, it was also a criticism of the evangelical church for not being a place where people like his younger brother felt like they were included. And we're talking here about any affirming theology. He was just saying that the outcasts, the people who felt on the outside of religion, they were some of those that Jesus brought in. They felt attracted to Jesus's ministry, but they don't feel attracted to our ministry in the Mm. church today, largely as evangelicals. Why is that? Are we sure we're preaching the same gospel of grace if we're not seeing the same kinds of people coming to our church? Hmm. It was really a profound message. And um, and in fact, I kind of leave it to listeners to guess which text he used at his younger brother's funeral. His younger brother's funeral. There's your hint. <laughs> but I encourage folks to check that out in the book. Well, Colin, thanks for joining us on the bulletin to to share this uh, story. We'll yeah. we'll have links in our notes to the biography, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Colin is referring, of course, to the story of the prodigal son. Tim preached on that story many times over the past thirty years. As Colin said, he found a particular resonance in the story of the older brother. All right, joining me now are Russell Moore, CT's Editor-in-Chief, Nicole Martin, our Chief Impact Officer, and David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, who shared his own reflections on Tim Keller's work this past Monday. David, welcome to the Bulletin. This is your first time joining us. We're glad to have you. First time? I've, I, I know Russell Moore a little, so I'm on, I'm on guard. <laughs> good, good. All right. Well, let me start with a question for you. You wrote this on Monday. You said, Tim didn't fight a culture war against that Manhattan world. His focus was not on politics, but on our own, quote, disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that control us. I read that and I thought to myself a couple of things, like even though he kept away from culture war issues, that's still a deeply evangelical idea, this this idea of sin. And it was really core to his preaching. And that's one that lots of people outside the evangelical world, I would assume in New York City, might still find retrograde right? And yet we're seeing this moment here, this beautiful moment with all of this affection for Tim pouring out from all corners. So my question for you is, how did he get away with that, (laughs) right? To have these convictions and yet sort of earn respect and admiration from such a wide swath of people. Yeah. First, some context on where he situated himself. I'm I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in Greenwich Village in New York and spent my, most of my life in New York. And I'm just reminded as you were talking, I wrote a book several years ago called The Road to Character. And I was talking about it on a TV show. And an editor from a different publishing house, not mine, said, I really like the way you talk about the book, but you use that word sin 
I wouldn't use that word. That's a terrible word. I would use the word insensitive. And I was like, well, mm. sin is not really insensitive. It's a little bigger concept. And so that was the world that Tim was in. And I think he was such a hit in that world, in part because, and he had mentioned this in some interview I read, that you sort of have to, the worldly values are, can you prove yourself as a successful intellectual or as a successful litigator or as a successful person in your job? And Tim had the verbal skills and the intelligence to say, oh, yes, this guy is credible as a litigator because he has certain professional skills. And that was permission then to listen to what he actually had to say. But I think also there are two other things. One, he never treated New York as this hostile Sodom and Gomorrah. He treated it as a town where people were yearning and finding their yearnings unmet. And so he was always respectful. He always saw each person made in the image of God and treated them with that layer of respect. And then finally, he had what the city was hungering for, but didn't know it, I would say. that. And I say this to Christian colleges and Christian institutions all the time. You shouldn't feel that people are attacking you. You shouldn't feel that you're like a victim of society here. You have what the world wants, which is a spiritual language. As Russell pointed out in Christianity Today, you have some practical wisdom about how to lead a good life. You have practical advice to give based on 2,000 years of Christian thought and the example of Jesus. So Tim went in with an abundance mentality and said, I've just inherited so much and there are so many people with so many desires. I'm going to help out. That's beautifully put. Russell, I'd like to ask you kind of the other side of that question, which is within the evangelical world, he had such an audience, he had such admiration as well. But oftentimes, again, because he kind of pioneered this different approach, love for the city, a little bit of an allergy to culture war stuff. There were also people who didn't quite know what to do with him. Yeah. I think what made Tim a success in that is he really didn't care. Not in the sense that I don't care what anybody thinks about me, but in the sense that he really did have a grounding of who he was in Christ. And he had a grounding, as David said, in New York. He didn't see himself as a missionary to New York. He was a New Yorker with a mission. And those were two very different things. So he had this sense of himself. He had a sense of humor about it. And he also had a great deal of compassion for people who hated him. He would explain, you know, sometimes this sort of railing on the Internet or whatever is just a lot of deep-seated pain. And so he saw that and then was able to kind of selflessly pour himself out, not just in these public sorts of venues in the church, but privately. I mean, the way that David mentioned in his column on Tim about Tim reclining back in the chair, <laughs> we're, we're part of a book club that Tim was a part of on Wednesday nights and another group that would gather together on Thursdays. And it's true. He would recline back in the chair and everyone whether Christian, Jewish, atheist, whatever, everyone was waiting to see almost what's dad going to say. I mean, he had such a, such a power of authority, and he was able to do that not just with intellectual issues, but speaking to people's real hurts and needs. And, and so the, the walls would come down in that way, and there was no one like him in our day. Nicole, you know, thinking about his broader impact you know, he ministered in a small church for his first nine years. He served as a professor for a number of years. And then even after he planted and successfully planted in New York City, it was another 
12, 13, 14 years before anybody heard of him, before he started speaking at conferences and writing books and all of that. How do you see that within the scope of the evangelical world right now? And, and it's strikingly unique. Do you feel like that's an opportunity, a, a legacy, and something that pastors and church leaders can be taken away from that? Absolutely. I got to know Tim's work through something called Movement Day, movement.org. So Mac Peer, Bob Dahl, and Tim Keller in around 2010 got together and they formed what they publicly called the three-legged stool. It was a pastor, a city leader, and a businessman coming together. And really, they came together to pray for the city. And out of that kind of birthed this huge movement. First of all, in conversations with Mac, he was telling me about how he and Tim would come together to pray. They would be in conversations about, I think it was a pastor's prayer summit around the 2000s, where they started praying together. And it was then that Tim asked Mac, hey, can we bridge this movement of prayer and church planting? So out of prayer, out of his passion for prayer and his passion for the city comes this movement, not just of church planting, but also of compassion for the city. And I think it's interesting, one of the points of legacy that we can learn from Tim Keller's life is how the ripple effect of your impact can really change the world. I mean, yes, he was a New Yorker who cared about New York, but I got connected through Movement Day because I cared about my city, which was Charlotte at the time. And having attended a, a Movement Day uh, session and hearing Tim Keller speak and seeing Bob and Mac and Tim work together, we went back to Charlotte and said, who are our business leaders? Who are our powerful pastors? Who are the people in our community that are city leaders? And we mirrored that. And today there are thousands of city movements that came together because a pastor had a heart for prayer that branched out into serving a city. So I think the biggest takeaway for me and the thing I've been wrestling with is what are the things I'm doing now that might have the ripple effect for the generation? And often pastors think, well, I've got to have this megalomaniac view. I've got to have this global ministry right now. I've got to go beyond the boundaries right now. But what if the ripple effect comes from your faithful prayer over your city? And what if that's mm -hmm. enough to spur a wider movement? And I think that's what he offers all of us. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I was looking at some of my notes on Tim and things that I learned. I, I was actually at Movement Day in 2010. Yeah. So, and that was the first time I met him. And mm -hmm. what I really saw is one of the critical things he contributed to the church planting world, which is where I was really immersed at the time, is that for Tim, he had this theological vision that from the church starting, you know, it starts with prayer. And he literally wrote the manual. <laughs> like you start mm -hmm. with prayer, you have these gatherings, you form these communities, and there's a real social and cultural impact is, is yeah. where it was supposed to go. It was a big vision, but it, it was never grandiose. It, it wasn't grandiose in the sense that it was about the church itself. I was always deeply moved by that. And then I think as well, when you think about the character of this, and, and David, maybe this you can speak to this as well, because I read that line about Tim reclining, and I was like, oh, I've, I've seen that. I didn't know him well, but I had a couple of calls with him. This, you know, He <laughs> leans back, hands over his head. A friend of mine said this week, she worked with him for the better part of 20 years. She said, there was no private Tim. He was the same person sitting in a conversation as he was when he was at a pulpit or, or in, a, in a conference room. And I thought when I was thinking about that today, I thought about your own work, looking at character, looking at wisdom, you know, sort of your book, The Second Mountain, the way you give your life away. 
do you see that in Tim's life? Was there a was there a deliberate decision for him that said, I want to be retreating, I want to be a listener? Or was that temperamental? Russell, you may be able to speak to that too. Uh, the, one of the puzzles, I would love to have gone back and seen him when he was in Virginia at that little yeah. church in rural Virginia, where, as he said, only 5% of the high school grads went on to college. And because he was, he had this big brain and he, he would stopped with knowledge of Carl Barton and all, you know, all this stuff. And he had references, the references in normal conversation were everything from the village voice to Heidegger to Kierkegaard. He loved quoting Charles Taylor, the philosopher. I mean, he just, it was all jammed in there. And I remember the first time I met him, I said, you know, you have so many references in your sermons. Where, do you have like have a file card system? And he said, no, it's all just in my brain. And he said, someday I'm going to get old and I'll lose the memories. I'm sorry we didn't get to see that. But what he had was just this incredible clarity of thought. And so I, th I think, you know, he was just being himself. And I think one gets a sense from the biography, the Hanson biography I've, I've been reading, that in high school and in college, he was just the way he, we saw him, <laughs> that he was humble. He was not like a big man on campus, but he was a leader. He was clearly a leader. By college, he was already Tim Keller. And it is that clarity of thought. And as Nicole was thinking, I'm just thinking one of the things, not only clarity of thought, but clarity of purpose was reminded, uh, Michael Ware has a piece in comment on Tim, where he mentions that he was humble about himself, ambitious for the kingdom. And I remember Russell and I, I guess we all went to these meetings in the last few years. How, what are we going to do to improve the church? What are we, you know, what, what are we going to do? And the meetings would be, here's what's wrong with the church, day one, day two, day three. And then I used to say, day four was when we're supposed to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? And it would be all like mumble, mumble, mumble. But one day I was at a, one of these events and Tim said, okay, here are the 10 things we need to do. And so he had a church planning agenda. He had a young life agenda. He had had a, more Christians in higher ed. And he had like this whole 10 points of specific plans to do. That is such a rare intelligence in any sphere <laughs> to know what exactly 10 things we need to do right now, let alone for somebody who has a philosophical and spiritual background. Just it makes him weirdly entrepreneurial in a way that I think is sometimes underappreciated. And in the relational aspect as well. I mean, he, he said to me one day, I think my mission right now is encouraging the next generation. And he was intentionally doing that, not just in terms of encouraging people along in a, in a phone call or something like that, but also checking in on people through others. And so it would be watch out for so-and-so who I think is going to have a rough time, really discouraged, and, and make sure that they're encouraged. Look after so-and-so who I'm afraid has been so hurt that he might move far left theologically uh, and get really confused. Watch out for this person who's getting a lot of criticism in her church. I mean, he would go through those sorts of admonitions to other people. Uh, he called me, Mike, one time after he called you uh, after something was on Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and he called to talk to you about it. And he called me later and said, make sure that I didn't scare Mike Cosper to death by calling him <laughs> out of the blue, <laughs> even though he was he was encouraging and kind of the call itself. But that they had that relational wisdom that you often don't see with somebody who has the intellectual gifts that he has. It's funny you mentioned that because I'd met him a couple of times over the years, and he wrote a foreword to something of mine many years before. But when I was making that podcast, I was really wanting to have him on 
the series to share his story. And he never replied to my emails <laughs> throughout the process. <laughs> and it was actually my wedding anniversary. It was like the evening. It was like 730 at night. My wife and I, I think we were maybe just sitting down to dinner or about to. And I get a text that says, hey, Mike, this is Tim Keller. Do you have time for a phone call? And Sarah goes, I mean, it's Tim Keller, Mike, take the phone call. (laughs) (laughs) And he explained his desire was to kind of wait the series out and have a a lengthier conversation about it. But that was one of the things that was remarkable about him was because he did follow up and, you know, we recorded an interview, but he also just was very, like his, his concern for where the church is right now, to hear it from him and to hear it with such a pastoral heart was really convicting for me. I mean, I was concerned to begin with, but for him thinking generationally, so deeply committed to what the church was about. And, you know, one other thing that I think strikes me about Tim, we said earlier that he was one who, quote unquote, stayed out of the fray of the kind of toxic issues. But in 2020, I will never forget, I was in a conversation with several colleagues about whether or not Christian organizations and pastors should be talking about racism. And there was a strong sense in that room, no, we can't afford to talk about racism. We can't afford to talk about issues of race. The gospel is above that. And one pastor said, but did you read what Tim Keller wrote about it? Tim says that racism is sin. Therefore, we must be talking about this. So, I mean, I don't want to paint a brush that he was away from these issues. I think, as we've been saying, it was his heart for the city. It was his heart for God. It was his genuine love for people that allowed him to enter into these spaces with conviction and a love for people that he could say, yes, this is a sin, and we're going to work together to solve it. So I, I think that's really remarkable. I remember he had a podcast conversation with Lisa Fields. Uh, she's the founder of Jude 3 Project. And you know, just hearing him talk with people, he embodied what we need to be doing right now, which is having civil dialogue conversations with people in a way that demonstrates respect and care for them, but also lifts up and, and kind of exists exemplifies what you believe theologically. And I think it's interesting. I told David the other day that this is a picture of what David talked about in his book, uh, Road to Character, about the difference between eulogy virtues and resume virtues, Mm. the things that you list on your resume, as opposed to what people will reflect on in your eulogy. And I mean, just think about even this conversation. Nobody's mentioned the size of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Nobody's mentioned the success relative to other church planting organizations or Redeemer City to City. Nobody's talked about how many books Tim sold. We're all talking about who he was. And I think that's really striking because I think he had the awareness to know that. Even when the rest of us forget it, he seemed to know what mattered. I wonder to what extent there's an appetite for and a vision for that kind of, you know, the word winsome shows up every time you read something about Tim over and over again. But is there an appetite for it in our moment? I guess this is a question, I'll put it this way. We live in these polarized times, right? And Tim was polarizing because he wouldn't be polarizing. What's the appetite for that? Do we see that as something that's growing that it's a long simmering thing, or is this a mind and a, and a posture towards the culture that we're maybe not won't see for a while? My own view is there's a, a huge appetite for it. I, I only became a Christian ten years ago, so I never really heard the word winsome a lot. 
now I hear that word more than Trinity or <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Like that word just pops up in the culture. And my understanding of it, it basically means not a schmuck, <laughs> like like friendly. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, you know, kind to other people. And so I think it, it, his gentle spirit, his loving spirit, his willingness to not hate anybody was part of it. But the second thing he had is there are a lot of people who diagnose ills in the culture. And Tim was one of them. He spent a lot of his life diagnosing ills in the culture. But frankly, he was educated about it. I have a mm-hmm. saying, and this does not apply to Tim, but sadly to a lot of other pastors I've heard. Every time you get the, the impulse to give a sermon about the culture, in quotation marks, I advise you to lie down and take a nap. <laughs> because a lot of pastors mm-hmm. just have not done the work. And they don't know the statistics. Their views of the culture are crude and based on simplifications. But Tim really did go back and read Alistair McIntyre, did read Charles Taylor, did understand Robert Bell of the culture of autonomy. He gave himself a first-class education on some of the cultural themes running through our country. And so he could be a critic about it because his views weren't Manichaean. It wasn't like they're these bad people. There, we're all embedded in a culture that gives us bad desires. We're embedded in a culture that gives us an ethos of autonomy. I can take care of myself. That gives us the idea that happiness and fulfillment is something one can give oneself. And so he had diagnosed very carefully and very intelligently and very compellingly to secular and non-secular alike. Here's the streams we're living in. And here's why Christianity offers a better way. And that was just tremendously compelling. I think there's an awesome desire for that. I was at a dinner, this was before I really knew Tim. I was at a dinner with journalists and a big group of DC journalists. He came down and he and Kathy were there and the journalists asked like 20 straight questions about gay marriage. And they they kept saying, well, why do you care so much about gay marriage? He said, you guys just asked me 20 questions on the subject. And <laughs> but he could, but the, eventually he won over the room just by you know, that moment where they all say, here's a pastor with orthodox views. I think Russell mentioned this, but he's smarter than we are. That, that was, that's a powerful tool, but not only intelligence, his ability to educate himself in the world around him, which take, you got to do the reading. You got to do the work. He certainly did. And I can almost imagine Mike, Tim reclining in the chair right now and saying, well, let's think about this for a minute. <laughs> was there an appetite for this in the 30s AD? No. <laughs> This is about following Christ. I mean, what's categorized as winsomeness, David's right, it's, it's, it's kindness uh, in, in the way the New Testament would speak to it. And it wasn't a strategy for him. It was, it was what it meant to be Christ-like. And then secondly, it's because Tim remembered what it was like to be without Christ. He, he came to Christ through campus ministry as, as an adult, and he, he knows what it is like to encounter Christ from that direction. And so he had a sense of understanding of where people are and patience enough to know that if you don't give up on people, and I've seen this, I can't count how many former atheists who Tim didn't confront right then and say, let's let's pray the sinner's prayer right now. He stayed on them and cared about them and continued to talk to them. And over time, they came to believe the gospel. I mean, that, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that he was attempting to map out as a way to do things. It was because he loved Jesus, mm. loves Jesus. 
okay, as we wrap up, I want to I want to hear this from from each of you. When you you think about Tim and you think about the way he will be remembered, what do you think his legacy will be for the church? And what is it about Tim that you will remember specifically? Let's start with you, Russell. I think his long-term legacy is going to be proving that this can be done and proving that someone can, out of faithfulness to Christ, do something that's not being done at the moment. Uh, Mm. There there was no Tim Keller until there was Tim Keller. And and he was reliant upon all kinds of sources and, and influences, but he stepped out and did something very different in his time. And I think that's going to be a legacy that's going to to last. Personally, I wrote about it today. I think about all the times when I would seek his counsel and I would do whatever he said. I stayed in a job I was about to quit because Tim said, you should stay. And I left a job that was, was the job I always wanted because Tim said, you know, life is short. Go, 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 go do something else. Because it wasn't just a word of counsel. It was coming from somebody. I knew he knew me. I knew he knew God. And I knew he knew the situation that he was looking at. And that's just really rare. Someone texted me, a New York City pastor who worked closely with Tim, texted me the other day and said, Gandalf isn't supposed to die. And that image of Tim as a Christian Gandalf is true because Gandalf, you you always knew he knew more than he was saying, but he was saying exactly what needed to be said. That was true of Tim Keller, and I'm going to miss it. Yeah, I think it's a legacy of multiplication and humility. You know, going back to just my conversations with Bob Dahl and Mac Peer. There's a sense that he entered into a prayerful relationship with such great humility that ended up in a movement of multiplication that is now literally around the world because he showed up in the room. And had there only been a city leader and a business leader, maybe it would have taken a different turn, but a pastor showed up. A pastor who cared about his city showed up in the room, and that launched a movement of multiplication with humility. And you would never hear him boast, I've created and spawned many movements around the world. You would never hear that because his heart for the city was something that God used as a seed that developed and brought forth fruit around the world. And that's something that I will definitely take away. Every age has certain theologians who are also public intellectuals. And the country needs those with spiritual and moral voices to speak into it. And over the decades, those leaders have emerged, and they're all different. They're all fit for their time, I suppose. I would go back to Reinhold Niebuhr and Abraham Joshua Heschel and Howard Thurman and Martin Buber, Martin Luther King, obviously. And Tim was as close as we've had in our day, having a pastor who was also a public intellectual. And so he stood on the landscape, and I'm struck. So many people were so sad this week. And I think it's because he was like an oak on the landscape that we had come to rely on and count upon and assume. And it was because he had this voice in the culture on all sorts of things. But then what was crucial about him, Reinhold Niebuhr, who I greatly admire, but he wasn't doing personal morality quite as much. And woe befall anybody who only cares about morality as some sort of big cultural and political thing. 
Morality is primarily within the tears and ruptures of our own hearts. And what Tim could do was talk, you know, he could quote Charles Taylor, but he could also write the meaning of marriage about how you, here's how you take Christ likeness into your marriage. And that's just very unusual. And I think that's what the world, not just the Christian world, the world hungers for. How do I do marriage? How do I do forgiveness, which he just wrote a book about? How do you do the minute acts of consideration that really make you a decent person or not a decent person? And then just speaking personally, you know, I, I'm not sure I would have come to faith without Tim. And this was frankly more as writing, though I, I went to see him in 2013, which was sort of the pivotal year for me. And he was took time, was super helpful, explained things to me. He had what a overly intellectual guy like me needed, which was like, here's the six arguments. <laughs> And that helped me get across the finish line. And so I'm, I'm, you know, my life was changed by him. And it was always an honor to get to know him. I think the, what I learned was when I became a Christian in 2013, I thought, oh, I know what the church is in America. You read Tim Keller, you read C.S. Lewis, and maybe you read Henry Nouwen. And that's it. That's what the Christian church is in America. Uh, and I, I said this to another friend of ours, that this is what I thought the whole church was, when it turns out it's only a small part. And he said, we have to have more Lord of the Rings references here. He said, oh, you thought it was all the Shire. You thought the Shire was the whole thing. So it turns out I was only in a little part of the church. <laughs> but it was a very beautiful part to enter. And it remains a beautiful, very beautiful part to be in, part because of Tim. I'll share one quick story. I, the first time I ever heard him preach, I was in New York City and went to a Redeemer service at Hunter College in their auditorium. And he preached, at, you know, incredible sermon. He'd been preaching all day. This was like seven o'clock at night. We wrap up at eight and he comes out at the end and he says, Hey, I'm, so people have been wanting to do a Q and a, I'm here for it. I'm just going to, we'll have mics out there. Anybody who wants to stay. And it was funny because number one, nobody left. <laughs> and then he just, he just pulled out a chair, sat down mm. and took questions for an hour and a half. Everything, you know, reformed theology, gay marriage, like on and on and on, and on these, these, Hard questions, angry questions at time, and just his steady demeanor, his clarity of thought, all the rest of it. And I just, I feel like to me this week, I just keep having that image of him sitting in that chair because that was his heart. It was the public intellectual, it was the pastor, and it was funny, and it was, it was just incredibly compelling. So, well, thank you, David, for joining us this week. Thanks, Nicole and Russell, and we will be right back. Makoto Fujimura is an artist and the author of several books, including, most recently, Art and Faith. He knew Tim for the better part of three decades, and they first met when Mako was a member at Redeemer in New York City. I had a conversation with Mako about his time at Redeemer and about Tim's view of the arts. Mako begins here talking about Tim's impact on artists in the city. Tim had this way of speaking to uh, my artist friends that were absolutely compelling. Mm -hmm. My artist friends who would never go to a church will find Tim's, even his sermons, if I give them a tape, they understood that this was a different approach, you know, third way, as Tim would call it. He was very winsome in the midst of Greenwich Village. His message had this capacity to reach the most unlikeliest people. Mm -hmm. And to his credit, he developed this capacity to listen well. 
which was not present when I first began to <laughs> know him. Not that he wasn't a good listener. It just wasn't one of the、mm. ways that he led with. And at the end of his life, with all the twitters,、uh, tributes coming in, you you see even more so how much of a good listener he became. Always curious about where people are coming from. We're talking to a number of people today, reflecting on Tim and his work. You're the only one we're talking to who was actually a member of his church. When you think about your experience there with Tim as your pastor, what stands out to you? Yeah, I、uh, put on Instagram. I was on my way to Shanghai. I, I have an exhibit in the Shanghai Museum, and I was praying actually the whole time because I knew Tim's situation was dire. And when I landed, Michael had posted that he had passed away. I walked into the museum, and there was this one painting that I did in 2002. I had forgotten about this, which was about Leap by Nigel. <laughs> It's about the tree, Nigel, the artist who could only paint one leaf. And I remember it was around 9/11 that he told me about this story, and I had. Sought counsel. We were part of a church planting back then, so Redeemer City to City church planting. We were actually the first daughter experiment. <laughs> so he was not my direct pastor, but really as a friend, he continued to pastor and mentor me. And you know, only in hindsight you realize certain things. And I think he realized that living and trying to be an artist at Ground Zero after 9/11, having Become a survivor, basically, you know, traumatized. There are certain preconditions that would make it very difficult for me to be an artist, right? To continue to paint,、mm-hmm. at least in the same way. And he gave me that story around that time to ponder, to think about. Short story written by Gerald Tolkien, and he said, you know, Tolkien had a writer's block, and he couldn't write, so he wrote this little story and. Lo and behold, five years later, Lord of the Rings <laughs> came out. Right?、Mm-hmm. I didn't think about this until I was standing in front of this painting that I did. One of the few paintings that I did in 2002. He must have thought about my creative process, the challenges of being an artist now at ground zero, and gave me that story as a gift. I didn't need any intellectual, <laughs> rational, <laughs> you know, argument why I should believe in looking at Ground Zero. I needed a story. I needed a leaf. And for him to have given me that as a gift, I literally stood in front of my painting, which I painted twenty some years ago, and realized that because of the situation I was under. I not only could not finish the painting in the ways that I, I usually do, but I chose not to because the incomplete gestures and marks that you make almost invisibly with watermarks rather than pouring pigments, I thought was more honest. And I was astonished to find that 20 years later, the layers have coagulated. And all these trees that lay invisible on the surface was coming alive. I thought about that conversation I had with Tim, realizing that his work continues,、mm-hmm. just as my work, as incomplete as it was 20 some years ago, is now in front of me, being revealed. Right, and that is 
something that Tim's theology, first of all, would allow. This is a generative unpacking of reality from a tiny reality in the corner of my world to a vast cosmic reality. He had the language to expand that. And it came partly from Tolkien's language of the tree is real. You know, like you only know reality until you meet Jesus and you know for certain that the substance of things hoped for is visible to you fully. And and so that was my way of grieving was to through the painting, I was able to remember that conversation. There's two opposite mistakes you can make in the face of tragedy, death and suffering. On the one hand, you can try to avoid grief. You can try to avoid weeping. You can try to put it out of your mind, get past it right away. And that'll either make you hard and inhuman or else it'll erupt later on and bite you and devastate you. But there's another mistake. It's to grieve without hope. This is from September 16th, 2001, the Sunday after 9-11. The Bible indicates that the love and hope of God and the love and hope that comes from one another has to be rubbed into our grief. The way you have to rub salt into meat in warm climates or it'll go bad. Your grief is either going to make you bleaker and weaker or it could make you far more wise and good and tender, depending on what you rub into it, what you put in. And that's what we're here to do. We are here not just to weep, but to rub into our weeping. I often think about 9-11 when I think about Tim Keller. I think about what it would have been like to gather in the church for the first time after that attack. I have friends who began a journey back to faith that day in that church. I also think it was a pitch-perfect sermon for the moment. It was from the book of John about the resurrection of Lazarus. If you went into this knowing what you were about to do, knowing how you were going to turn everybody's uh, weeping into joy in about 10 minutes, why would you weep? Why, why would he do that? I mean, why isn't he just, why isn't he just walking right by all the weeping and, and saying, <laughs> where do you see? And think about it. Does it make psychological sense to you that if you knew you were about to turn everything around in 10 minutes, if you, had to, if you knew what was going on and you had the power to do that, that you would be weeping, that you would be drawn down into the grief, that you would enter in to the, to the trauma and the pain of their hearts? Why would he do that? The answer is because he's perfect. Because he's perfect love. Because, he's, because that's, that's, that's perfect love. He will not close his heart, even for 10 minutes. He will not refuse to enter in. He doesn't say, well, there's not much use in entering into all this grief. After all, we're going to be putting it away in a minute. Not only did he invite his church to grieve, mourn, and hope, he also invited them to stay there in the city. I hope it's not true that over the next months and years, New York will be a more dangerous place to live. I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true that this will be a very difficult place to live economically or politically or, you know, in other ways. I hope that this does not become 
Uh, it, it feels like it today, does it not? But the fact is I hope it does not become a more difficult, dangerous place, a more expensive place economically to live, a vocationally to live, a more difficult and expensive place to, to be emotionally and everything. I hope not. But if it does, let's stay. Let's enter in. Let's be, let's be part of the problems. <laughs> you, you know, it's not just fixing. It's not just telling people the truth. What the city's going to need are our neighbors and friends and people who are willing to live here and just be a great city. And, and what we need, for example, it may be more difficult and expensive just to be Redeemer for the next few months and years. I don't know. I hope not. But if it does, then that's what the best thing we can do for the city. Just be ourselves, though it's going to maybe cost more money, maybe take more time. Maybe we're going to have to be able to be a little less concerned about our own careers and more concerned about the community. So let's enter in, okay? Let's not just have to fix it. Let's enter in. Let's weep with those who weep. Let's not be afraid of that. That's the first thing we learned from the tears of Jesus. Those of us who loved Tim, whether you were a close friend or if you never met him, his death is a reason to mourn, but it's also a reason for hope. The day he passed, his son Michael shared some of his final words. He said, there's no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. Did you notice the last line of the story, the last line of the text that I read? It said, when Jesus Christ rose, raised Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, the Pharisees knew they had to kill him. Now that he'd done that, now that he'd done that, his enemy said, now he's got to go. He's the most dangerous man there is. We've got to get rid of him now. Don't you think he knew that? When he was raising Lazarus from the dead, don't you think he knew that? Yes, he did. And here's what that means. Jesus Christ knew and made a deliberate choice. He knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause his own. The only way to bring, Je to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself. The only way he'd get Lazarus out of death was for, for him to be killed. He knew that. And boy, is that a picture of the gospel or what? Here's what the gospel is. We have a God who is so committed to ending suffering and death that he was willing to come into the world and in, be involved in that suffering and death himself. We'll see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.